You can be seated. I want to pray for us, but I want to invite you to also pray with us, to not just listen to me pray, but to yourself cast your cares on the Lord because He cares for you. Cast your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. Cast your greed on the Lord because He cares for you. Cast your comparison on the Lord because He cares for you. Let's go to the Lord and cast all of our cares on Him. The greatness of the Christmas Gospel is that all of our demerits are taken by Christ. All of our sin laid on His shoulders. Let's pray. O Emmanuel, we thank You that You are God with us. Not God against us. Not God apart from us. Not God away from us. But God near us. But God for us. We thank You that You've drawn near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank You for the Christmas Gospel and the reminder that Jesus came and took on flesh to be one of us, to identify with us, to bear all of our many sins and demerits. Thank You for this great Christmas Gospel that Jesus came to take upon Himself all of our many sins and anxieties and greeds and comparisons and discontentments. And God, I pray that we would come to You and lay all of those cares, all of those anxieties on You because You, You, Emmanuel, care for us. I thank You for these, my friends and church family that have gathered this morning. Lord, I pray that You would use these next minutes to help them to look upward and outward to the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. I pray that You would help us to see greatness and glory that would captivate us beyond anything else we see or experience in this world. I pray You'd show us glory that that binds us, that ties us fast to You. Lord, I pray that You would use this morning to infuse and to fill our Christmas celebration over this next 24 hours or so so it would resound to Your glory, to Your honor, and to Your praise. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the clarity the sufficiency, the authority of Your Word. Lord, use it to set our eyes on things above. Help us to take ten looks at Christ for every look at ourself this morning. We pray You'd help us in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Well, it seems like every December, I hear people question why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Just last Sunday, as I was leaving the service, I spoke with a lady who said that she had been told that the Bible says we should not celebrate Christmas. That it's sinful, in fact, to celebrate Christmas. I assured her that the Bible says no such thing. But I think that question, that confusion, comes from a debate about the origins of celebrating Christmas on December 25th. Evidently, I'm told that that date corresponds to a Roman pagan worship celebration from the 3rd century. 
And because of that connection, because of that questionable origin, some Christians don't celebrate Christmas at all, as if it somehow unknowingly means we're celebrating some demonic agenda. Now, I'm not an expert on the historical background of holidays, and I don't mind if some Christians decide not to do all the normal Christians, the Christmas stuff. That's their, that's their prerogative. But I, for myself, do like the fact that every single year, Christmas gives us an opportunity to remember the incarnation of the Son of God. You see, any opportunity to celebrate the greatness and the glory of Jesus the Christ, I am totally for. And the reason I'm totally for it is because I have a tendency to forget the most important and glorious truths. I need to be reminded of their significance regularly. And celebrating Christmas provides that opportunity. In fact, I believe God has orchestrated the calendar of our culture to remind us every year at the end of the year of the importance of the coming of our Savior into the world. And so regardless of when and why the practice of celebrating Christmas on December 25th started, the birth of the Savior was God's idea. From all eternity, this was the plan of God to exalt Himself and to redeem His people, the enfleshing of the Son of God. The fact that the eternal God took upon Himself flesh and became one of us is a staggering reality that is worth celebrating hard. And to make it even more breathtaking, to make it even more awe-inspiring, over 700 years before it happened in history, God revealed that He would do it through His prophets. So a few weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9 and the prophecy about the giving of the greatest gift ever given, the giving of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. God gave us God in order to bring us back to God. This is the gift of all gifts. Well, Isaiah was not the only prophet to get a glimpse of the coming of Jesus into the world. God also spoke clearly about Jesus coming to the prophet Micah. And perhaps the most well-known part of Micah's prophecy is the reference in chapter 5 to the eternal ruler who would be born in Bethlehem. Remember Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, actually quotes from Micah chapter 5 and applies this prophecy to Jesus. And so we can be sure when we read Micah chapter 5, we are reading about Jesus Christ. And so this morning, let's spend some time meditating on what Micah saw and declared 700 years before it happened. 700 years before the birth of Jesus Look at what Micah saw and declared. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is the powerful and life-changing word of our God. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, 
shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up into the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Now the book of Micah, contains a series of judgments and promises. It's this wave upon wave, judgments and promises. Judgments because of the people's sin, judgment because of the people's rebellion and darkness, but promises of God's mercy, promises of God's salvation. And so we saw this in Isaiah 9 a few weeks ago. The promise of the gift of His Son comes just after a section on the judgment and wrath of God. God gives His promise to people who do not deserve it. God gives His promise graciously. This is a promise of His grace. This is a promise that God would send His Messiah to enact His plan of rescuing His people from their rebellion against Him. Now, Micah lived and ministered during one of the most significant times in the history of Israel. Micah prophesied in Judah during the 8th century B.C., this is about the same time that Isaiah prophesied, Micah ministered to the southern kingdom during the Assyrian invasion and destruction of the northern kingdom. Micah prophesied and witnessed the fall of Samaria to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And Micah prophesied to the people of Jerusalem as the Assyrian army invaded Judah and surrounded Jerusalem. Micah proclaimed God's judgment and God's promise in a time of extreme distress and upheaval, in a time of extreme darkness. And in this godless, anxiety-filled climate, God graciously revealed Himself to His people through the prophet Micah. It's in this climate that God revealed His plan to send a Savior to set all things right. And so in Micah chapter 5, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is on full display for all to behold. And so I just want to stare at it. I just want to look at what it says about Jesus and who He would be and who we know Him to be. And so let's gaze for a few moments on the brightness of the beauty of our Savior in hopes that these truths would fill our Christmas celebration over these next few days. Notice Jesus is the greatest treasure in all the world. Jesus is the greatest treasure and He is worth celebrating is what this text says. Notice five truths promised about Jesus in this prophecy. Number one, Jesus was born in Bethlehem just as God promised. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So we take it for granted today that Jesus was born in a town called Bethlehem. We sing these songs that have Bethlehem in their title. But step back for a moment and just consider the wonder of this promise. Again, Micah is writing this over 700 years before Jesus was born. This is not like one of the songs we sing that was written after the fact. The place, the very city of the Savior's birth was given to God's people long before it ever happened. 
Why did God do this? Why did he tell us the city of the Savior's birth before it happened? Why is God drawing our attention to this, to this city, this particular city? Well, one reason I think God gave us this prophecy about the city the Messiah would be born in is because this is strong reason to believe God's word is true. When God says something, it comes to pass. We have copies of the book of Micah that date from before the birth of Jesus. This could not have been written after the fact. Remember in the book of Matthew, we're told that when the wise men came to Jerusalem, they started asking where the king of the Jews is. And Herod heard this, and so Herod assembled the priests and the scribes together, and he asked them, where was the Messiah to be born? They didn't have to go research this. They knew exactly where the Messiah was to be born because of this prophecy right here in the book of Micah, which they quoted to Herod. That is undeniable proof that this prophecy was written before the birth of Jesus. This prophecy was widely known before Jesus was born. This is irrefutable prediction of the future. The only way to get around seeing this as a supernatural prophecy is to say that Micah somehow picked a city out of all the cities in the known world and he just happened to guess exactly right. I would submit to you if you believe that, that's harder to believe than just saying God told us where the Savior would be born and God was right. The reality is that God did tell Micah the exact city the Savior would be born in and He did so to confirm that he knows the end from the beginning. This is strong evidence that Christianity is true. And so listen, if you're here today and you're skeptical to believe that Christianity is true, you're welcome here. We're glad you're here. It's a fantastic Sunday to be here. But just consider for a fact that God told us the city that Jesus was to be born into 700 years before it happened, this is not coincidence. This is an orchestrated plan and a solid foundation for believing that Jesus really is all that He said He is. But not only that, but this prophecy is filled with spiritual depth for God's people. Think about how God orchestrated all of history to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem at the exact right time. Like Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, about an 80-mile journey from Bethlehem, which is a significant journey in this day and time. And God calls the leader of the Roman world to demand a census so that Mary and Joseph would have to go to Bethlehem at just the right time for Jesus to fulfill this prophecy. And God didn't choose this city by accident. Bethlehem was chosen for some very significant reasons. Of course, Bethlehem is where David was from. And so I think this is clearly a reference to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that an heir would sit on his throne forever. But it seems to me that Micah's main point in verse 2 is that Bethlehem is so small and so insignificant. Perhaps one of the main reasons why God chose Bethlehem is because of its insignificance. The word little in verse 2 refers to both size and significance. It's really a way to say you're nothing, Bethlehem. In the eyes of the world, you're less than nothing. In the book of Joshua, when Joshua allotted towns to the tribe of Judah, 
Bethlehem wasn't even large enough to be named among the other 115 cities that are mentioned. In modern terms, Bethlehem wouldn't even need a single stoplight. Even Dairy Queen wouldn't think Bethlehem too small for a (laughs) restaurant. God is going to take an insignificant little town, a a nobody town, a nothing town, and He's going to bathe it with ultimate significance. This point, I think, is confirmed by the Gospel of Matthew again. It's the smallness of Bethlehem that Matthew picks up on when he quotes this prophecy. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually changes the wording of Micah 5-2 just a little bit, and he says this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. You see what Matthew did? You are by no means least. See, Matthew understands that it's only in the eyes of the world that Bethlehem is small, but not in the eyes of God. God chose Bethlehem to be the the birthplace of the ruler of Israel. The most insignificant place imaginable will bring forth the most preeminent person in the history of the world. This is how our God works. This is how our God works. God delights to use the most unlikely instruments to show, to display His glory. God's ruler doesn't come from Rome or from Jerusalem or from New York City. God's promised Messiah comes from the little town of Bethlehem. Bruce Waltke, New Testament scholar, writes in his commentary this. He says, quote, The focal point in redemptive history is none other than the insignificant town of Bethlehem, showing that Israel's future greatness does not depend on a great human king, but on divine intervention to bring greatness out of nothing. To bring greatness out of nothing. John Piper said it this way. He said, God chose the stable so that no innkeeper could boast. He chose the comforts of my inn. God chose the manger so that no woodworker could boast. He chose the craftsmanship of my bed. He chose Bethlehem so that no one could boast. The greatness of our city constrained the divine choice. And He chose you and me freely and unconditionally to stop the mouth of all human boasting. Piper went on to say, the deepest meaning of the littleness and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation, on the basis of our greatness or our merit or our achievement. He does not elect cities or people because of their prominence or grandeur or distinction. When He chooses... He chooses freely in order to magnify the glory of His own mercy, not the glory of our distinctions. And so let us say with the angels, glory to God in the highest. Not glory to us. We get the joy. He gets the glory. Beloved, God does not achieve His purposes according to the world's definition of greatness. God displays His glory through weak and helpless sinners with nothing to offer Him in terms of significance. Church family, when God looks down upon the hundreds of churches in central Texas, I guarantee you it's not massive buildings or massive budgets or well-oiled programs that catch God's attention. The church that God will use 
The church that God will bathe in significance is the church that humbly raises a cup and says, God, unless you fill us with your spirit, we are nothing. We are helpless and we are hopeless. One of the many reasons I love being a part of this church because I believe this is just the kind of church that God will choose to use to impact His glory. We've got nothing to boast in ourselves. We've got nothing that the world takes notice of. We've got nothing that people are clamoring to have. All we've got is Jesus, and He, friends, is enough. He's enough. The Savior was born in Bethlehem, and that teaches us that He is sovereign and His purposes will come to pass. Second truth about Jesus, and we'll move a little more quickly through these last four. Number two, Jesus is the divine and eternal King. Jesus is the divine and the eternal King. And so look at the second half of verse 2. It describes the Messiah as the ruler whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Jesus was born as a king, a ruler. He was not born a prince and grew to be a king like every other ruler. No, He was born as the king. We sing the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. says, Born Thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Jesus is that ruler, that king that God promised to send from of old, from ancient days. Now, there's some question as to what exactly this is saying about Jesus that He was sent from of old from ancient days. Some commentators argue that this is merely a reference back to the promise made to, for example, David. He's the one promised long ago to rule over David's household. In other words, he has an old heritage. However, it's difficult for me to not see a reference to Jesus' eternality in this promise. In the book of Daniel, we're told that God is the Ancient of Days. And here Jesus is described as the one from of old, from ancient days. And this is exactly what we believe, right? This is exactly what we celebrate at Christmas time. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who never had a beginning and will never have an end. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The language used here in Micah 5.2 seems to me to be a reference to the eternal nature of Jesus. He is 100% God and 100% man. He is the divine and eternal King who deserves all worship and all honor and all praise. And so friends, get this in perspective. We don't just celebrate a baby at Christmas. We celebrate the fact that the eternal God took on flesh and dwelt among us to be our king, to be our ruler, and the person of Jesus Christ to reign forever with His righteousness and with His justice. This is who Jesus is. This is who He is objectively. Whether you believe it or not, Jesus is the eternal and divine King. And my question is, is He King of your life? Is He your ruler? Or do you reject Him as a false king and live as the ruler of your own life? Is He your king? He is the divine and eternal king. Third truth about Jesus I want you to see in this prophecy is this. Number three, Jesus brings security and protection like a shepherd. Jesus brings security and protection like a shepherd. Notice verse 4. 
It predicts the kind of ministry that Jesus would have among us. It says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And so we know Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus brings security and protection to his flock like a shepherd. If you're one of Jesus' sheep, you can be confident that He will guard you, that you will dwell secure behind all of His omnipotent power. He will guard you, He will protect you, He will care for you as a shepherd does His sheep. Friends, true security is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. True security is not found in technology or wealth or social status. We don't find security in locks or alarm systems or guns or armories or bodyguards. In the most dangerous places on this globe, we find safety in the shepherd who laid down his life to protect us from our greatest enemy. Fear comes from not believing this truth. Fear comes from not trusting in Jesus as your shepherd to protect you, to guard you. If we believe this about Jesus, that he would be this shepherd to protect us, to provide for us, then we have nothing to fear in all of the world. He is the strong and compassionate shepherd of His people. Notice, He shepherds the flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God. Are you in need of might? Are you in need of strength to protect you? He will shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of of the Lord his God. And because of that, his people shall dwell secure forever. What a promise. What a Savior. What a King. What a Shepherd. Number four, notice, Jesus is exceedingly great. Jesus is exceedingly great. The end of verse four promises this ruler who would be great to the ends of the earth. The greatness of Jesus, it says, extends to the furthest corners of the universe. If you want to see true greatness, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord Jesus. He is 10 million times greater than the greatest things that we celebrate in this life. Who or what do you admire in this world as great? Who would you say, they're great or that's great? Do you, do you admire Great athletic accomplishments. Jesus is infinitely greater than the greatest athletes in the world. Do you admire nature's greatness and beauty? Jesus made all of that and He is far greater than what He has made. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do a million times greater than the people we admire most in any any area of human endeavor. There's no beauty in all the world that Jesus is not a million times more beautiful than. He is exceedingly great and His greatness, it says, stretches to the ends of the earth. This is why we sing the song, How Great Thou Art. His greatness is exceeding greater than we can even comprehend. But notice fifth and finally, it says Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. So the beginning of verse 5 says, And he 
shall be their peace. Notice it doesn't merely say Jesus will bring peace. Jesus doesn't just accomplish or secure our peace. He himself is our peace. Peace is a person. Peace is not some super spiritual status that you somehow attain. Peace is not found in some worldly treaty or agreement. Peace is a person. Peace is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, this prophecy was given during a time of war, during a time of famine. We can see that in the rest of verse 5 and verse 6. This is a time of great upheaval. God's people are surrounded by their enemies. And in the midst of this war, in the midst of this strife, God promises a ruler who would be the embodiment of peace for them. Peace is found in no other thing. Real peace is only found in the ruler that God would send. Friends, are you lacking peace? Not just in the hectic busyness of Christmas, but but in your life as a whole? Do you feel like peace is just sort of a a mirage that, that never really actually happens? Friends, run to Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. Through His life and through His death and through His resurrection, we can have true and eternal peace with Holy God. Jesus Himself is our peace. Well, we've only scratched the surface of the wonder of this great prophecy. But the point of this passage is clear. God will send His great ruler, His Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will be, He is, the greatest treasure of all. So how should this prophecy make a difference in our lives today? Let me close with just two thoughts. So if you've checked out on me, just for another moment, lend me your ear. First, if you don't love Jesus as your ruler, as your shepherd, then you need to repent right now. To repent means to turn away from your life of sin and turn to Jesus as your only hope. Listen, there's no other means of freedom from sin and entrance into the family of God than through submitting to Jesus as your Lord. Listen, your good works cannot save you. Your moral ideals cannot save you. Your religious duties cannot save you. Only Jesus can save. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one has peace with God apart from Jesus. And so run to Jesus this morning. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus. Acknowledge right now that you need a Savior and embrace Jesus as your perfect shepherd And trust Him to be everything that you need forever. Secondly, Jesus deserves and demands your undivided attention and your passionate devotion. In other words, you can't just give lip service to Jesus. You can't play games with such a ruler. If you're going to trust Him, He demands and deserves your undivided attention and your passionate devotion. Listen, if you're looking, and we all are, if you're looking for someone or something glorious enough to consume your complete attention and your passionate worship, you don't need to search any longer. Jesus is great enough to be everything you need. He is totally sufficient. And if He's not the ultimate treasure of your life, your value system is all out of whack. 
He is more precious than any pleasure or pursuit in this entire world. He is worthy of your total and undivided devotion and attention. And so I urge you now, look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, fix your gaze on the glorious Son of God who came through Bethlehem to rescue His people from their sin. I hope if nothing else this morning, you've heard that there is none like Jesus. He is exceedingly great. He is exceedingly valuable. And I hope you celebrate over these next few days with the sense of just how glorious, how worthy our Savior is. We do more than just give gifts and eat food. We worship a beautiful Savior. He is the greatest treasure of all. So I pray that our joy in Jesus would grow and flourish in these days as we remember the coming of our Savior into the world to rescue us from our sin. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are fairer than 10,000. You are the lily of the valley. You are the bright and morning star. You are the treasure of all treasures. And so we worship you. We celebrate you. We thank you that you are everything you said you are and you are everything we need. Oh God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might embrace your beauty, your glory in a way like we never have before. Change us, mold us, shape us, sanctify us by this strong and sturdy vision of who you are. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to worship you, for you are worthy of all. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your great name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. We will, I'm here to worship you. Mm-hmm.